This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 30 Richter's Test One. Waldo wore a harness around his midsection that made his wizard's cloak look goofy around the rig. Richter, Saladia, and Mulligan were at the cavern access threshold overhead, holding the rope that was attached to Waldo's person. They slowly lowered him into the darkness, foot by foot. In Waldo's ear was the gnomish communicator that Saladia had paid several gnome engineers to streamline so as to prevent them from exploding randomly. How does it look? Saladia asked in his ear. I'm not even halfway down, Waldo whispered, his voice echoing through the cavern. I can't even see the dragon yet. Everyone keep quiet, said Mulligan. Dragons can hear communication and other sounds from miles away. There was a sudden crunching over the speaker as Richter began munching crackers. He paused in mid-chew. Oh, sorry, he continued eating, but slowly... Waldo cast a fireball companion that slowly floated around his person as he descended deeper into the cavern. The area was about 100 miles northwest of Roe, just east of Mount Beale, and in the mountainous hills south of the ruins of Mecca Aish. This dragon had been roosting in these hills for years, since the area north of the gate had become a graveyard for both civilizations and spaceships. The remains of the starship Enigma lay in pieces just a few hundred miles to the east. It had become notoriously difficult to reach as the northern mountain paths became harsh from the lack of regular use. The traffic only flowed in one direction ever since Iyer and Shartan fractured into civil war. Even as he gradually lowered toward the underground lake below, Waldo couldn't see any sign of the dragon. He kicked back and forth to rotate around, but all he saw was water far below and the distant cave wall that was covered in glowing green moss. Waldo used his hand to control the fire, which he pushed farther and farther out from his person in front of him as the rope spun him around. At last, his fire illuminated the entirety of the area around, except for one shadowy dark area that was right in front of him. Waldo's rope did a full turn before he came back around to the shrouded corridor, and that's when he saw the thorny, spiked face of the ancient grey dragon they were hunting. Its gnarled and ugly mug emerged from the cloaked darkness where it had been hiding. Wallow screamed and reactively grabbed the rope to tug himself up and out of the way just in time for the dragon's maw to chomp through where he'd just been. Up! Up! Get me up! What? Richter yelled. Do you see the dragon? Yes! Wallow scrambled to pull himself up the rope as the dragon craned its neck to look at the intruder. Is it asleep? Richter asked. No! Waldo yelled. He suddenly felt the full strength of his party as they tugged him up from the depths of the cavern. Pull! Richter called. Heave ho! Heave ho! Heave ho! I can't believe I let Richter talk us into this, Ella said. I can't believe none of us could come up with a better idea, Saladia said. There were two ways to access the dragon's roost within the cavern. One way was to travel a week underground to arrive at its location if they even had any food left to get back or they could go directly to the hole over the dragon's roost where it came and went regularly. 
When Richter heard there was an entrance that didn't require a week of additional travel, he started concocting ideas to get the dragon's attention via the easy route. They certainly had the dragon's attention now. The dragon reared back to snap Waldo up, but Richter chucked a throwing axe that sailed directly into the reptilian beast's eye. Ho 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 ho, you got him right in the eye, Waldo laughed as the dragon winced and gave a furious roar. Waldo's demeanor returned to terror. Oh, Amine, now he's pissed off. The dragon's nostrils began to smolder with curls of smoke. Richter and the rest continued hauling Waldo out of the hole as the dragon unfolded its wings to launch. Ready, everyone? Richter asked. Nope, Saladia said. This is gonna hurt, Ella said. The dragon launched. Oh shit, Waldo yelled. Oh shit, called Saladia. Oh shit! Richter was cut off as the dragon soared past Waldo and through the hole where the group had set their trap. It wasn't necessarily a trap, but more of a massive chain harness that Richter had spent the better part of a week fabricating. He set it so that the dragon would fly through the circular chain harness on its way out, and then they would have the harness wrapped around its neck, secured at the shoulders with its flight inertia. That was one thing, but the truly Richter part of the plan was that each of the party members were also secured to the harness so that they would be able to assist in bringing the creature down. The dragon plowed through the chain chokehold they'd created for it, and tore through the opening with Richter, Saladia, Ella, Dothori, and Mulligan clinging or hanging off the dragon as it spun wildly through the air to be rid of the mess it had become entangled within. It reached the pinnacle of its initial launch, then flared its wings outward reflexively to catch the wind as usual lest the gigantic reptile fall out of the sky. This snap and burst of the wings sent the party members flying to the end of their chains before the dragon launched into downward flight toward the rugged terrain of the Deadlands. Richter clung to the spiny ridges on the back of the dragon. Saladia clutched a dagger in her teeth as she clambered to climb up the chain to the dragon's side. Ella had grabbed hold of the monstrous creature's claw of a foot for dear life. Mulligan and Dothori also tried to get back to the solidity of the dragon itself, but it kept rocking back and forth to be rid of the bothersome adventurers. Its efforts were to no avail. Richter reached for the axe at his back, but before he could, the dragon did a somersault in midair. The mountainous landscape below passed in a blur. Dothori! Richter yelled. Sing! Dothori took a deep breath as the dragon continued darting and whirling back and forth in flight. She gave a squealing belt of a cry that caused each of their headsets to crackle and fizzle out, but the dragon became enraged. It shook its head maddeningly as it screeched fire in all directions. Richter drew his axe as Saladia and Ella were able to gather themselves upon the creature's side. Richter slammed the recently sharpened blade of his axe into the dragon's back, just in time as it recoiled and tried to fling the passengers away. Ella stabbed her curved elven longsword into the beast's thigh. Saladia sank her dagger between the dragon's ribs. Dothori took a breath and screamed again, causing the dragon to visibly wince and sail toward a large lake. It happened so quickly, and no one was prepared. It plunged into the water with the adventurers still attached to its body. Saladia, Richter, Ella, Dothori, and Mulligan held their breath as the dragon dove all the way to the seat of the lake basin, then kicked off the bottom to launch back into the air from the water's surface. Everyone gasped precious air as they were drenched and barely holding on to the creature for dear life. With a sudden shift in aerial direction, Mulligan, Ella, and Dothori were flung from the dragon's back and dangling from their chain at its heels. Saladia sheathed her dagger and withdrew a cable she used for navigating hard-to-reach places. 
When the dragon made one of its sudden jolts to another direction, she was able to cinch a lasso to the creature's right arm. Pulling upon it forced the dragon to veer to the right. The dragon craned its neck to look at her before roaring. The five of them could sense that the dragon was at its wit's end. The creature aimed for a large mountain spire, meaning to ram itself through. Instead of trying to get back, Mulligan, Ella, and Dothori disconnected their chains from their harnesses before their parachutes popped. Richter shook his head irritably to know that they were four men down, while clutching the dragon's spines. If you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself! Richter grabbed his axe handle and tore it from the dragon's thick, thorny hide. Disconnecting the chain from his harness, Richter hooked it to the tassel loop on the hilt side of his great axe. While Richter had been doing that, Saladia scrambled around the dragon's belly and was able to clamber onto its spiny back next to Richter. She still had hold of her cable in the dragon's arm. Ahead of them, the spire swam from the moonlit landscape. Pull it, Sal! Richter yelled as they flew directly toward the large pillar of stone. Pulling as hard as she could, Saladia tore the dragon's arm over its back against the ball and joint socket of its shoulder. It gave a desperate screech. Their trajectory shifted as Richter leaped from the dragon's back toward the stone spire with the axe in hand. Thinking quickly, Saladia grappled with the hook on the harness to release herself. She barely had time to pull the ripcord on the parachute strapped to her back before the dragon was yanked around by the chain harness around its neck into a massive dusty tumble that shook the planet below. Richter had allowed his axe to be used as an anchor before ditching it to slide down the jutting stone column into the craggy canyon. Somehow, miraculously, the blade had held between two stone protrusions, but the top of the spire was decapitated in the process of yielding the dragon to the ground. Dust filled the air throughout the pass where Richter and Saladia fell. To their great fortune, the spire top had landed directly upon the dragon, pinning it in place. The reptilian monstrosity groaned in agony as Richter and Saladia approached it from behind. See? Richter called. I told you it would work! I have to admit, Saladia said, sighing. I stand corrected. Saladia and Richter's faces became saturated in a peach hue as Richter continued boasting about his chain harness. Their voices could no longer be heard as the shine of the firelight reflected off the glass. Chancellor Damius Marks clutched the peach-colored ramel orb in his palm as he watched the adventurers from his relaxed seat within his private sanctum. It was the Ignatius orb, which gave the user a concentrated astral viewing through the lens of the glass if they so chose to use it that way. Marks placed the orb upon its pedestal that had been mechanically floated over his chair. He pressed the pedestal mount to ease the apparatus away as he used the soft armrests to get to his feet. Exiting what he called the viewing sanctum, Marx entered his minister's office to find Sam at his desk, scrawling away at his paperwork with a quill and a bottle of ink. His name was Terlis Sam. He had been in Marx's company since he assumed control of Narsus some fifteen years prior, and many claimed he was the true ruler of Parsita. Send a summons to the adventurers of Roe, Marx ordered. Sam paused in the middle of his scratching with the quill looking at marks over the tops of his lenses. He placed the quill in the ink bottle and sat back in his seat as he looked up at Chancellor Marks. You do realize we've narrowed our attack strategy upon the capital city of Shartan. Any form of communication with Roe would break the silence we've maintained over the last decade. Marks held up a finger. Send the new senator, Salatravis. He is the brother to their company's rogue, Saladia. He would be happy to oblige in passing along my summons. 
And if they refuse, Sam asked, they won't. Are we so sure they can be trusted? They are shartans, said Sam. This is why we send Salatravis, said Marx. Saladia herself would never set foot in this castle if not for her brother. All the more likely that she will decline. There was a short pause between the two as Marx remained in the archway in thought. Have Salatravis invite the adventurers to Narsus, but tell them it's for a quest. I'll take care of the rest. 2. Richter slammed a hock of cooked dragon meat on the table. He pulled his chair back and slowly took a bite. Ugh, Elegator feet, disgusted. It's been two weeks, Richter. That shit is starting to turn, and it's rank. She closed the book she was reading and tucked it under her arm before leaving the study of their headquarters. It was just Richter and Saladia at the study table. Everyone else of the guild had retired or gone elsewhere for the evening. Holy omine! Saladia waved her hand before her face. That's pretty sour. But we have two dozen more pounds of it in the larder, Richter said, his face turning green. He shoved the plate back and sat back in his seat. I should have sold it to the gnomes a week ago. Don't eat anymore, for your own health, Richter, Saladia advised before returning to the ancient map of Chartan she had been examining. Stuval said it was here, she muttered as she refocused on a particular island off the coast adjacent to Trenton. Now I'm hungry! Richter crossed his arms. Saladia opened her mouth to examine the state of Richter's intelligence when someone knocked on the front door to the guild. Both Saladia and Richter got to their feet. You smell like dragon ass, said Saladia. I'll get the door. You get rid of this smelly crap. She turned and made her way to the front door of the building. She could see the silhouette of the person on the other side through the moonlight peering through the tall archways of the tower city walls beyond. Opening the door... Saladia processed that she was looking at none other than her older brother, Salatravis. Hi, he grinned. Amine, did I forget something? Saladia whispered. You usually don't show up unless I've forgotten something. No, Salatravis continued. I'm supposed to be here this time. Who is it, Saladia? Richter asked as he waddled up from behind her. Anyway, said Saladia, you're here to tell me what to do, right? Saladia asked. No, it's... Salatravis blinked. It's good to see you again, sister. The two embraced one another and parted. I didn't know you had a brother, Sal, Richter said. He stepped forward and rang Salatravis's hand. You must be Richter, Salatravis said, swallowing audibly at the sudden whiff of him. I've read a lot about you. Likewise, Richter grunted before turning around to walk away. Once he was a safe distance, Saladia breathed out through her nose at last. She could see the uncomfortable look upon Salatravis's face from being assaulted by the aroma. Should we go get a drink somewhere? Saladia asked. Salatravis sighed. I wish I could, but I have to go directly to Chester after I speak with you. The doorway will have to suffice. First of all, congratulations. You and your friends have gotten the attention of Chancellor Marx. You've been summoned by Marx himself for an audience in Narsus. He claims he wishes to bestow a difficult quest upon you. That sounds like something that would really excite Dathori, and maybe Mulligan, Saladia said. This means it's a trap and you'll be executed on the spot, or the quest will be so difficult you and your companions could be entering into a potential lethal situation, Salatras said. Thanks for coming out tonight, brother, Saladia gave him a fake grin and made to close the front door. 
If you don't go, Selectrovis drawled, it may accelerate his plans to level Roe to nothing more than a smoking hole in the ground. However, accepting his quest may have the opposite effect. Marx expects to see you within the week. Within the week? Saladia asked. We'd have to leave tomorrow morning, and hope the weather's okay. We also have clients that need help. Unfortunately, we're talking about the future king of Narsus and probably of Parsita as a whole. The days of Shartan's rogue king are numbered. Salatravis turned, stopping on the steps of their building before looking back at Saladia. Rest up, Cell. I have a feeling life is about to become very complicated for both of us. She watched him descend down the steps to the street and make for the steps leading to the next level of the city. She closed the front door and turned around to find Richter leaning against the inner frame of the doorway while eating an apple. So we've been summoned to Narsus, he said snidely. And if we don't go, Marks will lop off our heads. That's the gist of it, said Saladia. I'm guessing you overheard the rest of the conversation as well. Most of it, Richter shrugged. Sounds interesting. I'm in. Of course you are. Which means my second-in-command should be there as well. I haven't set foot in Narsus since I was a little girl, said Saladia. It's this or Aegir, and it would be best if Aegir and I had a little more time apart. So it's settled then. We're going, Richter asked. We don't have much in the way of a choice, even if Marx decides he doesn't like the cut of our jib and has us all executed for fun. Why would he summon us if he wanted to kill us? The guy's a psychopath. Everyone knows he likes torturing people. If we go, Richter, we go as a team, and we go with a plan. Battle music! Richter yelled and ran for the meeting hall. 3. The trip to Narsus was long, expensive, and uncomfortable. They traveled from Roe to Chester to the south by horseback. Richter preferred riding in a hired carriage with Dothori to hiccuping behind the rest of the group on a long-haired pony. Richter almost reached out to strangle Waldo when he referred to his carriage as the Kindergarten Club. They went straight to the docks of Chester once Ella, Saladia, Mulligan, and Waldo had hitched their horses in the livery. They boarded a ship that would be departing for Narsus shortly, and Richter, despising sea travel in every form, took six sleeping pills and retired to his quarters below deck. Everyone else went straight to the ship's bar to eat. It would be three days before they arrived in Narsus two and a half if the winds turned in their favor. Richter wasn't seen again for the duration of their voyage, except for the occasional stumbling trip to the bathroom. A strange, smoky aroma billowed from under Waldo's door. Saladia sharpened her knives in her quarters while Mulligan heaved his guts over the edge of the ship topside. Dothori spent most of her time doing her schoolwork for class back home. She was the youngest of the group and still needed to complete her regular weekly education. Upon their arrival in Narsus, everything changed. Half a dozen royal chauffeurs helped each of them with their luggage into exquisite carriages that promptly shuttled them to Narsus Castle. Saladia watched the three towers of the castle become larger and larger as they drew closer, icy fear slowly gripping her insides. She hated Narsus Castle. This wasn't her first visit, and if this went anything like her last, then they were in for some serious trouble. Ella had never visited Narsus before, so she peered out the window excitedly. Everything in the city was so clean. The people were all busy with their mercantiles and jobs. Pedestrians made their way to the markets, and children pretended to sword fight on the sidewalk as they passed. The smell of the sea was in the air as the entire city existed on a small island with only Narsus Bridge connecting it to the mainland. 
There were so many food shops she wanted to visit, but they probably wouldn't have time to tour the city this go-around. Dothori hurriedly finished her homework in her carriage while humming to herself. Mulligan shared a carriage with Waldo and kept his head close to the window as Waldo puffed on his pipe, filling the hole of the cabin with skunky seralea grass. Richter continued napping in his carriage in an upright position with his arms crossed. He began to snore with his mouth ajar as he tipped forward. Eyes flashing open, Richter caught himself and sat back up as the carriage came to a halt before the castle. Everyone disembarked their carriage, Dothori stuffing her homework in her suitcase before both it and her violin were whisked away to her room along with the rest of the party's luggage. One of the men paused before Saladia, looking for her bag or suitcase. Saladia only gave him a sharp stare, shook her head, and walked away to join her companions. A man in a fine suit and doublet greeted them. Good morning, my name is Chateau. The Chancellor would see you as soon as possible unless there's some objection. Saladia scoffed. Do we have a choice? Right this way. Chateau ignored her and turned on his heel toward the castle entrance. Ella and Saladia exchanged a neutral look as they followed the man up the steps. With his hands tied behind his back, Chateau made his way down the long passage. Though it was an overcast morning, a break in the clouds cast hallowed rays of light through the eastern windows lining the decadent central corridor. The party of six were escorted to a sort of elevator where they were raised to the royal hall. Upon the platform's landing, the six disembarked and followed Chateau through the lavishly decorated royal hall. The throne was empty. They walked past it and made their way to an exterior bridge platform. It led to the rook of the northern spire. The six entered to turn right along a wraparound corridor leading to a spacious landing that encompassed the whole of the Chancellor's viewing sanctum. Throughout the faraway circular walls were archways that gave both light and breeze to the room. At the back of the grand sanctum was a balcony, upon which Chancellor Damius Marx stood. The six adventurers approached him. Everyone had heard of Marx, knew of him from the news, and even knew that he was most likely to become king in the near future. Unfortunately, at the cost of their current acting king. However, upon meeting him, they saw that he was much taller than they would have imagined. He wore a black uniform that looked a mixture of robe and tunic. His fingers were laced with fine bands of gold and gemstone. As the group drew close, they could smell the cleanly spearmint aroma of whatever expensive potion he used as moisturizer or cologne. Marx turned around with his arms crossed. His yellow hair was trimmed short, and he had a large beak of a nose beneath lavender eyes that could not hide the darkness contained within. Good morning! Marx looked between each of them, his eyes settling upon Saladia before he gave her a sharp grin. I take it your journey was uneventful? The ship ride was too wavy, the cart ride was too bumpy, and I didn't get enough food on the trip, Richter complained. To the average observer, these were mere complaints that anyone might have, but to the rest of the group who knew Richter, it was comically true to his character that he would complain to royalty or authority of any kind. It was a dwarven trait, according to him when he was drunk enough to explain himself, to nitpick as much as possible to authority for the off chance that they might actually compensate him or do something about his problems. Unfortunately, Chancellor Marx was not a normal figure of authority, he was unfazed by Richter's remarks, continuing his superfluous grin that made him oblivious to the issues of the common individual. They would later learn that it was less that Marx didn't care, but that he saw through Richter, 
He miscalculated the man that Richter was, and while Marx had witnessed more than the average person, the longevity of his experience and the exposure to the Remmel orb made it almost impossible for him to properly gauge personalities. There was only one person Marx noticed during that first meeting, and she was uncomfortably aware of his attention. Saladia glared at Marx when he pierced her with his purple pupils and that unsettling grin. It made the weird smell of him that much worse. I've called the lot of you here today. Marx tore his eyes from Saladia as he broke into a quick back-and-forth pace in front of the adventurers. Frankly, because I don't like getting my hands dirty. I could easily retrieve the other artifacts from their nesting locations, but the process requires a party anyway, and if it's going to require a group, I may as well just commission the whole thing to someone else. I'm getting old, and at some point it's just best to leave the hard things to the professionals. So you've got a quest for us then? Richter asked. The ultimate quest. Marx turned to meet Richter's eyes. You'll be retrieving the second of my orbs. He walked over to the center of the viewing sanctum and waved his hand. The contraption housing the Remmel orb spread apart and the group took their first look at the Ignatius orb. The group suddenly looked over as Saladia sucked in a breath of air and took a long step back. There was a childlike fear in her eyes that none of the party had ever witnessed. Richter noticed her hands were shaking and he'd never seen that of his best rogue before. The grin upon Marx's face turned into a smile. He flicked his hand into the air, and the orb snapped off its pedestal to his fingers. Saladia scrambled backward to the wall preceding the rounded stairwell. Guards, seize her! Marx ordered a group of guards that had covertly followed them up the passage. They grappled Saladia's arms as she tried to look away from the orb. Waldo, Dothori, and Mulligan moved back, but Richter stepped between Marx and Saladia. What the devil? Marx blasted Richter off his feet with the wave of a hand, causing the dwarf to faceplant upon the stone floor. Ella drew her knives and dove for the Chancellor as Marx launched a conjured ball of fire in her direction. She barely dodged the fireball that exploded upon the stone floor behind her. He then raised his other hand to send a wave of piercing ice spines across the tiled floor, but Ella kicked off the ground and spiraled with her forward momentum over the ice. Three feet away from the elderly Chancellor Marx, blades in motion for a deadly strike that would kill him on the spot, Waldo blasted Ella out of the air with his own fireball. She tumbled on her side to a halt by the orb's perch, her elven leather tunic smoldering from the strike. Waldo, their silly inebriated mage, had made a split-second decision to save the Chancellor's life. Everybody stand down! Richter pushed himself up. Marx continued without breaking stride towards Saladia with the orb clasped in one hand, and his other hand pressed to the small of his back cordially. Hold out your hand, Marx ordered as the four guards gripped her arms. Saladia frustratedly produced her gloved hand. Marx pulled her glove from her shaking fingers and tossed it away. Grappling her wrist, Marx turned her hand over and placed the orb into Saladia's open palm. Her eyes immediately went pink as her body tremored. Marx grabbed Saladia's skull with his thumb upon the center of her forehead. Stop this right now! Richter charged from Marx, but more guards appeared to hold him down. Quiet, dwarf! Marx hissed over his shoulder. The prophet is speaking! Marx released Saladia, and as did the guards holding her. Saladia's entire body went lax. She fell to her knees beneath Marx's outstretched grasp. 
The whole room went silent. Other than Saladia and Marx, no one was able to move, not even the guards. Raising her head, eyes still piercing sunset pink, Saladia spoke through a voice that was not her own. Find Eknar, extinguish the shadow, retrieve Shakir. Saladia spoke. Marx began pacing between the members of the group as though none of this was new information. In three days, the battery will awaken. Marx stopped abruptly. He turned around in an instant and shouted, What? Marx grabbed Saladia by the shoulders as her eyes rolled into the back of her head. The orb slipped from her fingers, but Marx caught it. Everything within the room seemed to return to normal as the guards guided Saladia to the ground. What in hominy was that? Richter demanded of Marx. The grin from Marx's face was gone, leaving only a cold, calculating snarl. The battery he muttered under his breath, turned around and finally addressed Richter and the rest of the group who were recovering. Mulligan tried to help Ella to her feet, but she only tugged her arm away to push herself up. Dothori picked up Saladia's glove and went to her side as she came to. Well, you heard the prophet. Find Eknar. Figure out this shadow. Then retrieve the orb. What about the battery? Richter asked. That's none of your business. Marx curled his fist, causing Richter to float off the ground as he was unable to breathe or move. Marx gave an airy wave of his hand before dropping Richter to the floor. Guards, escort our guests to the city bridge. I don't want to see them again until they've brought back the orb as requested. With that, Richter and the others were ushered out of the castle and then out of the city. 4. The six of them were seated upon the tram that would take them across the 100-mile Narcissus Bridge. No one spoke as the tram moved so fast that speech was incomprehensible. Not that anyone wanted to speak. Saladia kept her arms crossed while staring off into the endless Adane Sea around them. Dothori sat next to her, and Ella sat on Dothori's other side. Richter, Mulligan, and Waldo sat in the seats opposite to them. Once the tram finally settled in the coastal town of Barbos, the six disembarked and made their way toward the livery stables. All right, called Richter while they were standing on the coastal path overlooking the small town. The sky was overcast and the salty sea wind was cool as it blew between them. Everyone stopped and gave Richter half of their attention. We gotta talk about what an omine just happened back there. Waldo prevented me from solving all of Shartan's problems, said Ella. That's what happened. Even if you'd succeeded in killing Chancellor Marx, Ella, said Waldo, you'd have accelerated the absolute and total invasion of Shartan by Narciss. Chancellor Marx is basically king apparent until this shit with Roe gets resolved. He's not wrong, growled Richter. There was a threat, and I acted. More than I can say for some of us. Ella shot a look at Mulligan and Dothori. I'll help, sighed Waldo. Pay to clean up your tunic, Ella. Mella said nothing, still irritated by how everything had played out. I need to contact my brother, Saladia said at last. Everyone turned to her. The color was beginning to return to her face. Does it have something to do with a battery? Richter asked. I... Saladia stared off in thought. I don't know yet. She started walking toward the courier's office, then stopped. She knew the mail would be monitored going into the castle, and reconsidered. Is your brother in Narciss? Waldo asked. He should be, Saladia replied. 
Since we're only a hundred or so miles from Narsus, I can use a message scroll and send it with a raven to his office. You can do that? Sure, why not? Waldo shrugged. Just figure out what you want to say, and we'll go from there. Saladia spent a few minutes preparing what she needed to tell Salatravis. Richter, the Thori, Mulligan, and Ella went to the local pub nearby, leaving Saladia and Malu on the hill preceding the ocean. Waldo puffed on his pipe as he sat on the wooden fence that had been built along the cliff ledge to prevent people from falling over the unexpected drop beyond. At last, Saladia approached him. I'm ready, she said. Waldo hopped off the fence and opened his inner robe pocket. He pushed aside a strange lavender toad that growled and bared razor-sharp teeth at him to withdraw one of the three message scrolls he had stuffed within. Unrolling the scroll, Waldo flicked his eyes to Saladia. She nodded. Waldo spoke the few sentences in the old Alondron tongue that sounded so much like Latin, causing the scroll to burn between them. From its ashes, a hallowed beam of light shone through the clouds upon the spot between the two adventurers. You have thirty seconds. Waldo grabbed Saladia's wrist and tugged her into the beam of light. Looking around because she didn't know where to look, she began to speak the words she prepared in her mind. Salatravis, I hope this message finds its way to you quickly. Marx has sent us to a strange location known as Eknar to retrieve the Shikir Rimmel Orb. But that's not the strangest part. There's no time to explain, but in three days, you and I must be on our way to the Cow Desert in southeast Charton. I will meet you in Chester the day after tomorrow. I'll tell you everything then. Goodbye. Saladia stepped out of the light just as it evaporated, leaving only the windy gray sky above. Good? Waldo asked. Saladia took a deep breath. That's better. I... I saw more than Mark's nose. She met Waldo's gaze. What do you mean? The prophet and Mark's referred to a battery, but it wasn't a battery. It was just a man, said Saladia. I could see everything. Everything that should happen, and everything that could happen. That orb. She trailed off, staring at nothing as she looked past Waldo. Yeah, I know a lot about them, said Waldo. Enough to know that I know nothing about them. I know what you mean. She blinked and looked to the path leading back down the hill to the main road. If my brother doesn't get that message, Marks will find and kill this battery everyone's talking about. We have to get this orb from Eknar quickly. You seem confident we can find it even though we don't know where to look. Waldo followed Saladia down the path. I know where to look, and we do find it, Saladia said. I had it in the visions I saw. Which means in the visions where this battery gets killed, we die trying to get it, right? Waldo scoffed. Very likely, Saladia said. The two entered the pub to find the rest of the party. The adults had already finished their second round while Dothori kept working on her homework. When Ella saw them, she got up and made her way through the crowded local village patrons to their side. Waldo, her speech was a little slurred already, just wanted to apologize for getting mad. What you did. It's fine, Ella. Waldo tried, but Ella grabbed his scrawny wrist. No, Waldo, she pleaded, her elven green eyes meeting his. I almost assassinated the Chancellor. I kept thinking self-defense, but they would have killed every one of us if I'd been successful. Well, crisis averted, said Waldo as he put his arm around Ella's shoulder. I have a few rounds to catch up on, and, uh, I still plan on paying you back. I will meet you in Chester the day after tomorrow. I'll tell you everything then. Goodbye. 
Saladia's ethereal image stepped away from the light, and the whole magical message disappeared. Salatravis reclined in his chair. He glared at the table as he stroked his mustache and beard. He thought of the rainy night in Cathra when they were only kids, of how Saladia had pulled him into the alleyway to avoid the guards before they encountered the seer. She had only given Salatravis a cursory glance, but when she saw Saladia, her entire demeanor changed. She could see that Saladia had the sight, and what was that old adage, he who sees, sees who sees? Senator, Marlon Rose gave two knocks on the frame of Salatravis's door. There's a young woman here to see you. She says she's a former student of yours from when you taught at the university. A stab of fear hit Salatravis's chest as he got up and rounded his desk. It wasn't that he didn't know who the girl was, it was that he knew exactly who she was. Marinwin was not supposed to be here. She entered the room from around Marlon's side. Her general smile couldn't hide the concern buried within her eyes. Good morning, Senator. Marinwin gave her customary bow. I'll just be in the next room here if you need anything. Marlon ducked back out through the threshold. What are you doing here? Salatravis whispered to her as she met his blue eyes with her brown ones. I'm sorry, I couldn't wait to tell you she whispered. She opened her mouth, her eyes wide and generous to explain, but no sound emerged for a long time. I- I'm- I'm pregnant, she choked at last. Slotrevis's eyes darted back and forth. Oh, of course, he said loudly so that Marlin wouldn't draw unwanted conclusions, although his jockish grin told Slotrevis he had his suspicions. Slotrevis alternatively didn't know what to say. While he did not have the sight like his sister, he was an extremely intuitive man. This, however, was not a conversation he had anticipated. When? he asked. A few days now, said Marinwen. I went to the doctor and it was confirmed. My father, my father will kill me, and you if he ever finds out. Marinwen's father was none other than Deltia Chester, the duke of what was not long ago known as Dartus. He was a dangerous man. With him and Harold Rowe causing their trouble in Shartan, it was hard to square a young, ambitious man such as Salatravis becoming entangled in a scandal involving Deltia's daughter. And yet, here they were, meeting publicly about that very circumstance. It was wonderful to see you again, Marin. Salatravis spoke loudly and fished in his pocket for several coins to give Marinwin before dropping his voice to a whisper. Meet me in the cross-stitch inn across from the Laughing Dragon Tavern on 6th. We'll discuss this further there. Salatravis placed a hand on Marinwen's back to guide her out of the room into the hall. She shot him a look that expressed he had not handled this well before leaving the office rotunda. Salatravis watched her go, thinking about that and Saladia as well. Why can't life throw one major tribulation rather than a multitude? At least he was no longer her teacher anymore. The two had met while Salatravis was in Dartus six months prior after her class with him had ended the previous semester. Neither could deny the spark they had shared throughout their difficult eleven-month time together as teacher and student. The last six months of their being together had been like something out of a dream. When Chancellor Marx had sent him to meet his sister, Salatravis had spent the majority of his time with Marin. She was only five years younger than him, but wise beyond her age their child would be the best of both of them. All of this was happening so quickly. Salatravis sat behind his desk and put his head into his hands. 
And then, of course, he had to consider everything that was going on with Saladia as well. Who was this battery? Why and how had he become trapped in such an isolated place? If the knowledge Saladia gleaned was true, they would need to reach him before Marx, because if she knew, then he knew as well. Chancellor Damius Marx was the master of the Remel Orbs. Amine only knew how long he had been in total control of them. So why then would he bother sending a group of adventurers to retrieve the other Remel Orbs if he could just do it himself? To show loyalty? To find out if he could use these people to eliminate Shartan's rogue king? Solotrevis found himself packing his things from his desk. He watched while thinking predominantly of Merinwin as he drafted a letter to the court, stating that he would be taking a short leave. Marlin would have his suspicions, but Solotrevis would not be with Merinwin for the majority of this absence as his deducing mind might assume. No, he and Merin were about to bring a child into the world with an uncertain future. A world where the Remel orbs could be used by a dangerous mind to dominate any and all descent. What a fallacy democracy is when superpowers hold men in check. Solotrevis could not allow Marx to obtain that orb if he could help it. He grabbed his coat and submitted his letter to the plaintiff for examination before leaving the office rotunda. His presence wasn't required for notifying the council of his temporary leave. He dropped down the wet steps of the Capitol building that looked small beneath the shadow of the massive three-spired Narciss castle. A salty summer drizzle fell over the city as he made his way for the Laughing Dragon Tavern where he prepared to receive a scolding from Merinwen. But Merinwen was not upset. She seemed to be in continual shock from the knowledge of this child's existence. The look in her eyes was far away until Solotrevis could bring her back at times. They spent the night in the room Merinwen had booked, then left early in the morning before the sun could rise. They went straight to the docks to grab a ship headed for Chester where Saladia said she would meet him. The journey was smooth and uneventful, although Marin always got seasick for the first quarter of the trip. They disembarked the vessel in Chester on a clear blue morning. There was no mistaking the smell of the pines and the untamed aura of Shartan. There was a sort of gravity that pulled everything toward its center. It was both fascinating and intimidating. It's why people either fell in love and moved directly to the country, or shunned it altogether. Solotrevis had resisted the country's luring intrigue, but now that Merinwin was having his child, a change of location might be in order. The two couldn't be seen together for long without arousing suspicion, so they bid one another farewell in an alleyway next to the docks before Merinwin stepped out and made her way back to the castle. Solotrevis went straight to Mason's Tavern the massively successful bar that lay at the base of Mason's clock tower along the main road leading through the city of Chester. Solotrevis wasn't sure he would find them right away, until he saw the whole of the tavern entranced in one of Richter's stories as he sat in the center of the bar. Four drinks in, the dwarf had everyone in the building eating out of his hand as he narrated the story of their latest dragon takedown. Solotrevis saw Solatia sitting in the back corner of the bar with the hood of her travel cloak over her head of red hair. She sat with her arms crossed, listening into the conversations going on behind Richter's rambling. Solotrevis single-handedly extinguished her rogue stealth mode by sitting down at the table adjacent from her. Eknar, he said, this isn't going to be easy. Solatia invited the party to join them at the table for a company meeting. Richter was not so enthusiastic about being dragged away from being the center of attention to listen to Solatia's brother. 
Tell me again why we need to listen to someone who works for that psychopath. Richter scowled as he sat with his arms crossed. Solatia answered before Solatrevis could. Solatrevis doesn't work for Narciss. He works for the humans in Redvine. Our father raised the two of us to be model Alondron citizens, said Solatrevis. It went better for me than for Solatia. I was able to infiltrate the Parsita Senate, which gets me into the castle on a daily basis. We are fully aware of the threat that sits within Narciss Castle. Marx has more power and control over the levers of government than he cares to let us know. So about this Eknar place, said Ella. I'm quite learned in Parsita geography, and I've never heard of that location. That's because it's not a location on the ground in Parsita. It's a large floating island that hovers above the hazy marshland of Tallow. I don't know where that is either, Ella said. That's because it's an island that's on the brink of sinking into the sea, said Solatrevis. There's only one way to get onto Eknar, and that's to activate the transport beam that's located in a temple that's mostly underwater. Richter slapped his face. Why is it always harder than it should be? There's a reason Marx doesn't wish to retrieve the orb himself. I have a feeling sending you is both out of entertainment and convenience. Entertainment? asked Mulligan. Yes, Marx is going to be watching everything you do from the Ignasus orb which he controls. I don't know what kind of challenges await us in both the temple and on Eknar. Expect considerable defenses as Marx placed this orb here to store it for the long term. So you're coming with us? Saladia asked. I don't have a choice, said Solatrevis. We must prevent Marx from obtaining this second Remel orb at all cost. Richter gave an unpleasant growl. I've got enough babysitting to do without adding a squishy senator to my party. I assure you, I can take care of myself, Solatrevis said. He'll be fine, Richter, Solatia confirmed. Now all we have to do is find a sea captain with a ship who's crazy enough to take us to Tallow Island, Solatrevis said. Ella sighed. You'd think at this point we'd have enough money to buy a decent boat. I might know a guy, Solatrevis said, but he won't be cheap. Richter grumbled. Unfortunately, the questing market has been a little bit scarce at the moment with all the political turmoil. We'll deal with the cost. Solatia's face went red as she looked from Solatrevis to Richter. All right, in that case, I can have a ship ready for us by early morning, said Solatrevis. I'd better let my guy know so he doesn't drink himself into a stupor by the morning. Better yet, find out if he is so we can join him, Richter perked up. This is not a journey to take while inebriated. Solatrevis said curtly as he got to his feet. I'll be back shortly, or perhaps you can grab a room at the inn if I don't see you again. Solatrevis left the tavern and disappeared from sight. All journeys can be taken inebriated, Richter growled. What do we know about this Solatrevis person? Mulligan whispered. About as much as the underside of my elbow, Ella frowned. Hey, come on, guys, he's my brother, Solatia said. He came from Narciss. Ella replied. He's trying to gain a political foothold in that country so he can change all the corruption from within. Like trying to protect a snowball in hell, Richter said. But we can't just refuse a direct order from Chancellor Marx himself. The guy's insane, Waldo chimed in. Why not go fetch the stupid orb himself? Because maybe he physically can't, Saladia said. This remark was followed by silence until she continued. What if this thing is locked up so tightly, even Marx doesn't know how to bust it free? 
I hope that's not the case, considering how he held up against Marks in the castle. Waldo cocked his brow. Richter hummed and stroked his beard. That means we should be careful going forward. Everyone but Richter and Slaudia trickled away to the inn across the street. Richter and Slaudia sat side by side at the bar in silence for a little while. Eventually, Richter glanced over at her. What else happened? Hmm? Slaudia asked. What you saw in the orb, said Richter. What else did you see? Slaudia didn't say anything for a minute. She sipped her beer and stared blankly at nothing. Richter waited patiently. The two had always had a strong connection when it came to important matters pertaining to their lives and especially the livelihood of the party. I saw a great war, she took a deep breath, surrounding Roe. I saw the place where we're supposed to go to find the orb, but I also saw something I don't think Marx was able to see. And what was that? Richter took a sip of beer. I saw the champion of Parsita. I saw them defeat Marx, like it was nothing. Like, of course Marx couldn't win. I saw everyone in the city drop to one knee from the steps of Narsus Castle. Our champion is all I know, and I have no idea who it is. I don't understand, Richter grunted. Me neither. It, it, Saladia stammered. It doesn't make sense, and it's all out of order. And it's not absolute. I saw a thousand iterations where none of us survive, and there is no champion. In that short period of time you were connected to the orb? Richter asked. It happened so quickly, in flashes and bursts of images. There was so much more, and I can only remember about what I've told you. Interesting, Richter said and finished off half the tankard of beer in his fist. One last question. Did you bring your best equipment? Of course, she said. Good, said Richter. I expect this will get very difficult before we're finished. 5. The next afternoon, the six-plus Solotrevis were speeding on the young master Algus Porsky's naval defense vessel. It was a fine frigate that allowed them to navigate through the murky tallow waters without issue. Solotrevis had offered Porsky a large sum of money for his services, and Porsky had agreed. It wasn't until Saladia realized that the boy was both 18 years old and already a heavy drinker that she understood why he accepted Slotrevis's offer. To the dismay of everyone aboard the ship, Richter and Porsky became almost instant best friends. Even Dathori, who loved most forms of singing, including bad singing, even she became exhausted of their drinking songs that carried through the morning. Saladia scanned the sky to the west through a pair of gnomish binoculars that had been broken in the center and taped together to accommodate for bigger faces. She searched for a sign of Eknar, but Salatrevis assured her that it wouldn't be possible to see for the yellow haze that drifted through the air above the murky bog of the island. Land was sighted not long after lunch, which was good because even Porsky thought the conditions of both the water and visibility were too poor to continue further. To prevent Porsky's ship from becoming entangled in the island's notoriously gnarled roots, the adventurers took two boats to the shore of Tallow Island. Even though Porsky could see them, as they drew toward the island, it became more and more difficult to see the ship through the haze. Both boats grounded upon the shore and everyone disembarked. Before they could go anywhere, Slotrevis raised his hand for attention. I know this is a little disorienting, and obviously very uncomfortable, he began, and instantly slapped a mosquito the size of a Jotun coin on his neck. It's very important that you avoid killing any of the snakes you may encounter on the island. 
Maybe it's a rumor, maybe it's just superstition, but allegedly the snakes are connected via a sort of hive mind, a security system of sorts for the temple. Either way, just for our own protection, don't kill the snakes. After parting company with Porsky, Richter was now in a noticeably bad mood. He grumbled to himself about snakes while looking at the wet grass of the island beneath his feet. Everyone followed Solotrevis's lead as they traveled. Richter eventually found himself at the back of the group, chugging his short legs to keep up as they trudged through the muddy marshland. He jogged on more solid ground to keep up with Waldo ahead of him. Throughout the island, there were large pieces of brick and housing, signs of former civilization being consumed by the sea. Everything was covered in a layer of vines or moss. They occasionally traveled over cobblestone streets that had become disheveled and worn away from the erosion. Snakes were everywhere, emerging from and disappearing into the slimy ponds that were all over the island. While Richter was left behind, he saw an arcade of arches at a slant descending slowly into the swamp. Before he could run to catch up with the party, he saw the largest curve of a serpent he'd ever seen churn just above the surface of the water. His jaw dropped as he watched the mottled brown and gray skin sleuth through the area around them. Richter hurried to catch up with the others. The moment he emerged from the haze upon the path, he almost ran into Waldo as the group stood before the entrance to the Tallow Temple. Only about 15% of the entrance was above water as most of the structure had sunk into the swampy island. Lame! Richter's voice filled the area. I think this is the east entrance, said Solotrevis. There's also a north entrance, but it's probably in a similar state or worse. We were under no illusion this was going to be easy, Ella said. All right, guys, said Waldo as he stepped forward, his hands folded and flexed before he cracked them. Ow! Shouldn't have done that. Anyway, I have a control water spell that would be optimal for this circumstance, but it only lasts ten minutes. We only need to find the teleportation lenses in the temple, said Solotrevis. The state of the temple, however, tells me that aligning the teleportation beam might be tricky. A snake slithered past the mucky heel of Richter's boot, causing him to jump a few feet forward. Easy, hard, impossible! Let's get out of this damn swamp before I start crunching every snake I find! Waldo was able to cast his control water spell upon each of the party members, giving each of them a bubble of air that encompassed each person's head. Ella, Dothori, and Mulligan were fine, but Richter, Salatia, Salatrevis, and Waldo were surprised to find their long hair floating all over the place within the bubble. Each had to tie their hair in order to keep it from floating into their mouth or face. The seven descended into the temple threshold, swimming while breathing awkwardly. They had to dive low against the pressure at the bottom of the steps, which was at least 30 feet below the water's surface. All of the fish and reptilian creatures steered clear of them as they swam to the inner sanctum where they surfaced. The whole room had shifted as the temple sank into the swamp. They were able to climb a set of steps that were at a difficult angle and emerge from the swamp water. Well, we're burning our cloth and leather equipment when we get home, Ella said. Uh-oh. The ties holding Dothori's hair snapped, and she suddenly had a large, frizzy afro. Waldo took off his soggy, pointed wizard's hat and turned it over to pour an impossibly large amount of swamp water onto the cobbled bricks of the walkway while Mulligan and Solotrevis squeezed the water from their robes. Ruined. Saladia took off her travel cloak, allowing the party one of the rare glimpses of her arsenal of weaponry strapped to her body. She had a pistol in its sheath on her hip next to a long dagger that was adjacent to a different dagger jutting from her other hip. She had at least two CXs embedded in her leather leggings. 
When she turned, everyone could see the six throwing knives positioned in her belt below the small of her back. Richter grumbled, pulling green scum from his beard and slopping it onto the ground irritably. Gonna be smelling swamp for weeks! Oh, wow! Solotris hurried forward down the path that led to a large circular platform. Everyone followed, still miserable from the unexpected swim. While most of the vast hall was at an odd angle, the disc-shaped platform was suspended by four large chains. There were paths leading around the room, but there were three massive lenses of different sizes that could be positioned directly over the platform connected to the different layers of the theater's construction. When the seven finally reached the disc, they realized it was actually an additional lens that was covered with dust. Solotrevis wiped a smear of the dust on the lenses beneath them with his boot. Fantastic. The lens is filthy, and the teleportation beam is underwater at the bottom of this room. Starting to understand why Marx didn't want to mess with all this on his own, Richter complained. The whole theater room suddenly shook. A geyser began bubbling from the swamp water alongside the suspended lens. We need to align the lenses above, then turn on the teleportation beam, said Solotrevis. Me, Saladella, said Richter. Let's get those magnifying glasses situated before this place collapses into the ocean. Raising the grappling chain attached to the mechanism braced to Richter's wrist, Richter fired the grappling hook to the second floor balcony banister and pulled himself up to the passage leading to the first magnifying glass. A chunk of the ceiling dropped from the floor above and almost struck him as it took a piece of the floor down. Saladia and Ella went the other way, but the moment they reached the passage, two gargantuan snakes erupted from the water's surface. Their reptilian faces leered at them as they arched over the ramp leading to the upper floors. Saladia and Ella glanced at one another. Race you, Ella said, darting forward. She leaped over the banister and sliced into the snake's trunk of a neck before riding it up to the third story. Saladia wouldn't have known what to do, except the orb had shown her. She drew her pistol and aimed at two different load-bearing pillars on the second and third floors opposite to where Ella had ascended. Firing in succession, her bullet struck each stone pillar's weakest point, causing an avalanche of stone to collapse upon the second snake's cranium. Without skipping a beat, Saladia clambered up the makeshift path that was temporarily created as the snake took the full weight of both ruined stories. Richter found a strange handle that connected to the lens hovering over the teleportation glass. Grabbing the handle, he was able to manipulate the lens and position it to line up with two notches that someone had made in the banister below the thick lens's sturdy mount. He made sure it was evenly level, then fastened two knurled thumbscrews to keep it locked in place. That's when the largest snake, the one Richter had seen lurking through the water earlier, burst from the water below. Geronimo! Richter yelled and jumped off the second floor balcony onto the snake's neck. Saladia and Ella reached their lenses and figured out, as Richter had, how to set them. Saladia finished tightening her set screws as she watched the giant snake below wriggling wildly to shake Richter off its back. We're good! Saladia gave Solotrevis the thumbs up. Get back down here! He called. Solotrevis turned to Waldo. We need another control water spell to activate the beam below. The snake crashed into one of the upper stories with Richter raving on its back. I've wrestled bigger reptiles than you, and you're nothing special! The snake slammed Richter's back into another stone pillar, causing his eyes to bug out momentarily. I'll turn your hide into a boot! I can only cast it one more time, and on myself, Wolo shrugged. Then be so kind as to figure out how to turn on this contraption, Slotrevis said. Waldo cast his control water spell and created a bubble around his head. 
Diving into the water, he swam against the pressure, but Richter and the snake were moving around so vigorously in the swamp, everything was cloudy and mucky below the surface. Following the central construction with his hands, Waldo's fingers eventually found a stone lip that allowed him to push himself deeper and beneath the murky upper part of the waters. He found himself within a chamber of sorts. It was the activation area for the teleportation beam. Waldo could see writing in ancient Alondron around the inner wall's upper stone trim. It explained that the beam required a form of magical power to activate. Any would do, but the whole thing being submerged negated almost all of Waldo's options. He thought about casting lightning, but then realized that while it would work, he would be cooked like a fish in the process. But what if he could set a charge that would detonate when he rejoined everyone on the surface? He knew how to construct a spell like this in theory, but whether or not it would work was a different question. His brain came up with a quick solution, and it would have to work because they didn't have very much time. It took him a few seconds of fishing in his robes before his fingers closed upon the two bide gems he had in his possession. The bide gem was meant to give a psionic or spellcaster energy or life in a pinch, but it could also be used as an explosive once impregnated with too much energy. As with most things he should have learned in school, Waldo was dealing with something he'd never done before. This was really more of a psionics department, not a wizard, but he couldn't come up with anything else. Squeezing the crystalline gem between his hands, Waldo conjured a little bit of lightning, some fire, and a load of psionic burst power. He had no idea if it would work, but the thing was glowing through his closed fingers by the time he was done. Placing the gem in the middle of the stone floor, Waldo swam up and out of the crevice, back toward the surface. Above, Richter had straddled the snake until he finally fell from its neck to the lens below. The snake arched its back to thrust at Richter, but Richter grappled himself out of the way of its strike. Solatrevis and Ella dove to the Crooked Temple landing, leaving the whole mass of the snake swinging on the lens in the middle of the room with Richter hanging onto the chain overhead. Waldo surfaced, his control water bubble popping upon reaching the air above. There was a sudden BANG followed by a flash from below. There was an instant beam of light, and the snake was gone. The lens continued swinging around with Richter hanging on. Hey, it worked! Richter yelled. Approximately three miles north, a massive 1,600-pound snake randomly fell from the sky into the ocean. Why didn't the snake go to the island? Ella asked. Because the snake caused the lens to rock back and forth, explained Solotrevis. If the lens isn't precisely straight up and down, the beam will send you flying to whatever reflective direction is relative to the light passing through it. Not feeling confident about this teleportation lens, Solatia said as she and Ella approached. It's the only way to the island, Solotrevis said. Waldo, can you do whatever you just did again? Richter called down to Waldo as he tried to swim to a ramp leading to the first floor. Probably, Waldo said. I have another bide, Jim. Sounds expensive, Richter said. I've only ever found two. Waldo sopped up the ramp as he'd done once before, and would probably have to do again. Okay, now that the snakes are subdued, let's get everyone back to the lenses and you can drop the second one, Solotrevis called. Give me a little bit, said Waldo. I've been pulling my weight more than usual on this quest, and my spells are all toast. Please, scoffed Ella. This guy stays up all night coming up with new ways to burn grass. Don't act like you're tired after a little work. Waldo glared at Ella. 6. Foon. The seven adventurers appeared on the teleportation lens at the landing platform of the large floating island known as Eknar. 
They were immediately fired upon by four lizard-like humanoids in helmets with crossbows atop a large reinforced gate that blocked the passage leading to the temple complex. The group dove into action, Ella drawing her bow first to take out the four troglodyte guards in quick succession. Richter tore a crossbow bolt from his arm, growling as Mulligan healed him to full health. The pain remained with him as the wound closed, leaving only a hole in his sleeve. Solatrevis stepped up to the large wooden gate and blasted it apart with a fireball spell. One of the sentries blared on an alarm horn that reverberated throughout the island. Jeez, we've got heavy resistance inbound. Ella rapidly climbed up the wall to silence the noisy horn sentry. Feels good to be with a party again. Solatrevis nudged Solatia. She looked back at him and gave him a meek nod. You all right? he asked. Yeah, just a familiar feeling is all. Saladia readied a hand of throwing knives. Slinging them out, the knives met the four reptilian guards who had just appeared at the front line of a small platoon. Ella flicked an arrow from her quiver and fired within two seconds masterfully, ruthlessly as her aim was true upon the squadron of defensive forces beyond the gate. Dodging a series of crossbow bolts that whistled over the bridge, Ella swung off the rooks of the gate to rejoin the party. The six entered the kingdom that stood upon Eknar. The path led through a utopian farmland that surrounded a large temple complex centered in the middle of the island. There were three hollow construct towers reaching to the heavens surrounding the main temple structure. The temple complex was beautiful and picturesque in the golden light as the afternoon sun made its way toward the horizon of clouds that covered the sea in all directions. This place stood outside of time, outside of reality in a world of Marx's making. As the Eknarians rallied to defend the small island kingdom, Solatrevis took the lead. He turned while walking backward to point over his shoulder at each tower. We'll need to split up and send a small group to deactivate each tower. After that, we'll be able to acquire the orb that's keeping this island afloat. So, what do we do after we remove the orb keeping the island in the air? Richter asked. Ah, that's why Dathori is carrying a backpack with seven parachutes, Mulligan said. Correct, Solatrevis pointed at Mulligan. Why do we always have to end up wrecking a mass of land into the ocean on these quests? Richter asked. At least we have parachutes this time, Solatia drawled. The way things would need to go, Waldo and Dathori would be securing Tower 1, Solatia and Mulligan would be securing Tower 2, and Ella and Solatrevis would be securing Tower 3. Richter would need to remain in the central temple to retrieve the orb when it appeared. The six would be joined on a gnomish audio communication channel so they would be able to coordinate properly in individual teams. The group made short work of the Eknarian attackers leading up to an ornate circular center in the road that divided into three roads feeding the different towers. Upon taking out the central guard, the six split off into their assigned pairs, Richter following Saladia and Mulligan toward Tower 2. Ella and Slotrevis went right, and Waldo and Dathori went left. Dathori withdrew her violin from the case on her hip as dozens of lizardmen in ancient rusty chainmail armor came rushing at them. Waldo fired several magic missiles at them while Dathori tightened and rosined her bow. Waldo was surrounded by three of the lizard minions. He cast a shocking grasp spell that electrified one creature to paralysis. The second threw a knife at Waldo and barely missed. The third smacked Waldo across the head with a quarterstaff that nearly knocked him unconscious. Dathori tuned her violin as more of the reptiles advanced down the path ahead. Waldo launched one of his attackers into the grass alongside the path with a fireball spell. 
The lizard with the quarterstaff took another swing at Waldo, but the three ran her bow along the threads of her violin. The quarterstaff came to a full stop in mid-swing as the rough sound of a single note on the violin reverberated through the area. Every one of the lizard people who had been coming to assist came to a stop as well. As though her personality suddenly switched, Dothori hopped into the air and began fiddling an intense lick as she began dancing along to the music. She whirled between the stuck Ignarian soldiers in their piecemeal assortments of armor. Waldo, rolling his eyes, got to his feet and followed her as Dothori weaved between the reptilian creatures who were ultimately subject to the will of the music. The slow effect of her song touched all who could hear its beautiful sound. The reptilian soldiers began to dance and clap their hands to the beat. When Dothori whirled, the Eknarians whirled. When Dothori gave a quick hop into the air, the soldiers hopped in place before rolling their bony green shoulders and hips to the music. Ella and Solotrevis made an excellent duo. As Solotrevis was known as an elemental sorcerer, he was able to slow the oncoming troglodytes with conjured icy winds while Ella picked each target off with skilled accuracy. They entered the third tower around the same time Dothori and Waldo reached the first tower. Richter, Saladia, and Mulligan cleared the central path leading to the largest tower with a wide open center at the building's pinnacle. Saladia and Mulligan continued upon the rounded path leading alongside the massive central tower to the third tower while Richter made his way around the front. Richter was a high-level fighter, so he was able to cleave through five oncoming attackers three times within six seconds, virtually flinging his assailants in all directions with the brute strength of his axe and himself. Entering the gargantuan worship hall of the building, Richter saw the whole of the kingdom's remaining populace coming at him down the middle path. He was skilled, but he couldn't take out a mob of hundreds of soldiers. Using his grappling chain, Richter tugged himself up to the second floor of the worship hall. He clambered over the balcony as arrows whizzed over his shoulder and jogged for the stairs. Several soldiers tried to block him, but he bull rushed through them. Sweat had begun to pour from Dithori's hairline and down her cheeks. She kept playing all the way up the steps to the first tower while keeping the soldiers immobilized with the music. Waldo followed her inside past all the dancing people, but Dithori was getting exhausted, so she switched tunes. Uh-oh. Waldo looked over his shoulder from the rounded stairwell at her. She met his eyes with a stern expression. He quickly plugged his ears with the earplugs he had on hand for when Dithori's bard spells got real. Instead of dancing, all the lizard soldiers around them began to yawn uncontrollably. Dothori slowed down and eased them to an enchanted sleep with the lullaby of her enchanted violin. Once the last of them fell down, Dothori removed the bow from the violin strings and breathed a heavy sigh of relief as she dropped both arms. Waldo withdrew the earplugs and beckoned for her to follow up the steps. The lower tower interior was full of armed troglodyte soldiers who were now asleep. Against the rounded far wall was a central column leading to a large mage stone that could be reached by ascending the steps that circled the walls to the open top of the tower. As they made their way up, Saladia and Mulligan in their tower were slaying their way to the top as well. Salatrevis and Ella obliterated their foes until they reached their mage stone at the crest of their tower. Made it! Dithori called over the gnomish communicator attached to her ear. We've secured Tower 3, Mulligan announced. We've got Tower 2, Slotrevis said. Richter? Give me a sec, would ya? Richter placed one of his throwing axes through the dual handles to the High Council's chamber that was located on the upper platform of the main tower. There were three alien-looking lizardmen in strange flowing garb standing behind a crew of about 30 Eknarian soldiers. 
One of the council members spoke to the other. The elder council member hissed before turning to stand upon a large platform. He activated something on a control panel, and the platform began to ascend. Richter saw the platoon of soldiers, then fired his left gauntlet's grappling chain at one of the pillars next to them, tugging himself over the heads of the men toward the elevator. He was able to use his right chain gauntlet to attach the grappling hook to the edge of the speedily rising elevator platform. A rush of wind hit him as he was tugged into motion along with the elevator, leaving the flabbergasted soldiers behind with the equally horrified council members. The walls of the tower fell away to the vast, cloudy landscape that surrounded the floating island below. Richter dangled from the platform as it rocketed toward the top level of the tower. The elevator floated to a stop at the edge of the great central disk of the tower's top floor. Richter's chain gauntlet ratcheted him over the elevator to the utter shock of the single council member who recoiled in terror as Richter soared onto the elevator with the grappling chain automatically coiling back into its position upon the device on his wrist. He grabbed the council member by his frilly cloak's front and shoved him down onto the elevator floor. Stepping off the elevator, Richter punched the button on the hollow panel at the top that sent the elevator back down, destroying the elevator terminal. He turned around and approached the center of the disc. He could see the three pinnacle points of the main tower reaching to the starry sky to the east as the sun melted upon the western horizon at the edge of the field of cirrus clouds. The tower's construction was that of a strange, glossy metal. There was no one else up here but Richter. He made his way to the central mage stone that floated within a purple field over the alien central control panel. I'm at the top of my tower, Richter said through his communicator. What do I do now? Okay, said Solotrevis as he looked at his mage stone. It stood within the single pointed spire of the wall of his tower. Each group has their caster. Cast whatever magic is your most powerful upon the stone. Once they're activated, Richter, you should be able to shut down your mage stone through the terminal. Channeling his elemental firepower into the stone, Mulligan powered his with holy magic, while Waldo was able to fire an endless barrage of low-level magic missiles into his mage stone. Topside, Richter watched a glowing ring slowly swirl from one side of the circular control panel to the other beneath the central stone. Once the ring was complete, the purple field lightened. Richter's eyes scanned the panel with its alien language for something that looked like a shutdown option. Great, we left the most technical job to the least tech-savvy person on the team, Ella remarked. Hey! Richter yelled back through the communicator. Richter, said Saladia, look for the turquoise glowing button. It should be the only one on the side facing the sunset. There we go, Richter called as he found the button. Just needed some specific instruction to get the job done. Richter mashed the button with his palm. The mage stone floated up for a second as an aperture opened beneath it within the ring of the control panel. The mage stone dropped through the open hole before the metal aperture spiraled closed. Uh-oh! Richter took a step back as the light of the sun eclipsed the horizon and faded, bringing a sudden darkness to the disk around him. He was about to turn around when the aperture opened again. This time, the Shikir orb, red as Mars with its swirling sandstorms and all, was floated into the purple field emanating from the archaic control panel. Richter was a dwarf, so he knew of fine metals and other geological majesties, but this was something else. His eyes immediately grew wide and filled with the red light of the orb as he moved closer to the object. It was magic, and it was one of a kind. That was all Richter needed to know for his dwarven lust to set in motion. 
Something strange happened around the orb, and that made Richter stop for fear of a trap. A translucent air shimmered around the floating ball. The aperture remained open, allowing a suit of ancient black armor with a royal blue cape to float up from the void to encase the orb through the neck of the breastplate. Richter noticed a sheathed longsword belted around the armor's cuirass. The armor quickly became animated as it stepped out of the field while the aperture closed behind it. The arms of the armor spread wide as the shadow approached Richter. So we meet again. Marx's voice crackled creepily through his communicator. What the? Waldo asked. What's going on? Ella asked. Your leader is about to depart from this world. Marx crackled as the gauntlet of the armor drew its sword. Richter grabbed his battle axe and glared at the ghostly armor coming at him. Bring it on! Richter clashed metal on metal with the shadow. Richter whirled about to skillfully deflect and attack the armor that sought to end him. The shadow was fast, but Richter was able to see several attacks ahead. The shadow would land a blow if he didn't sacrifice movement for future mobility. It was within the scheme of seconds that he knew and reacted, firing his chain gauntlet behind him. Richter tugged himself out of the trajectory of a life-ending slash. Releasing the mechanism with his thumb, Richter dropped the grapple and used his momentum to run the opposite direction from the charging animated armor. As if exploding into existence, the shadow within its cuirass appeared directly in front of Richter with a timed strike that he barely brought his axe up in time to reflexively deflect. Richter landed a meaty dwarven kick on the armor that sent it flying a good distance before he charged the armor, sending it back into defensive mode. Richter was angry, except he didn't really get angry. He got vengeful, and when Richter became vengeful toward an entity of any sort within his realm of awareness, he became supernaturally cunning. Richter fired his chain gauntlet to the pillar behind the shadow and used the pull of his trajectory to smash the flat of his axe against the breastplate of the armor. Releasing the grappling mechanism, Richter whipped the chain to wrap around the animated metal legging so that when it ratcheted back, it literally took the legs out from under the shadow. The armored legs went clattering uselessly across the sleek metal floor behind Richter with the chain still attached. He kept the chain locked with his thumb so it wouldn't ratchet to reel the chain in further. Richter then whirled about, flinging and bashing the steel legs across the shadow's breastplate. His strike landed so hard that the armor crunched and flew away from the exposed red orb floating within the twilight dimness of the disk. Wind rushed through the open tower top. The floor rumbled beneath Richter's feet. The entire disk platform was moving. The three pinnacle points of the tower became smaller as the disk rose to its maximum height, away from the elevator down, and from help or aggress if Richter needed it. The Shikir orb hovered before Richter. The ethereal ghostly form of a humanoid began to materialize around the orb itself. The shadow formed within a residual uniform of high cleric's garb, and the familiar face of Chancellor Damius Marx peered down at Richter. Has the time come so soon? He gave his signature maniacal grin. You're coming with me! Richter raised his foot and stamped. The head of his axe burst into flame. The shadow Marx rose into the air, raised his hand, and began raining fire upon Richter. The dwarf ducked and wove impossibly between the strikes, diving out of the way of a huge blast of fire. He used his grapple shot to strategically strike a blow directly into his opponent on his way past. A globular force field surrounding the orb within the shadow deflected the strike. 
Richter landed and skidded sideways upon his boots. Marks popped into existence over him, slashing an ethereal blade, then disappearing and reappearing to slash again repeatedly as Richter brought his axe up to defend himself with precision accuracy. His flaming battle axe caught the ghostly shadow blade upon each strike as Richter dashed and darted back and forth between attacks. Grappling one of the pillars, Richter brought his axe blade through the orb shield once more. This time, he heard a slight cracking sound upon impact. He released the ratchet mechanism to prevent himself from flying off the ledge of the tower, felt the heat, and backflipped out of the way of a small meteor strike that took out the pillar he had just used as a grapple for his attack. The blast still launched Richter off his feet to his back, but he kicked to his haunches just in time to receive another blitz of strikes from the shadow marks. Richter ground his teeth together as he shouldered the blows with his axe blade that was becoming chipped and cracked with each deflection. Out of pure rage, Richter shot his fist into the air where he predicted the shadow would form next, only for the orb to appear in his grasp. An electrifying pain fizzled through his fingers and arm as he was lifted off the ground. He gripped and clutched the orb as it rejected him. As if shot by a lightning bolt, Richter slid on his stomach across the tower top to a halt with his hair standing on end. All the air had left his lungs, and he gasped for breath. Gathering himself and his axe, Richter pushed into a run toward the shadow. Shadow Marks raised its hand and sent a scourge of cold through Richter's charging figure. The closer Richter got to Marks, the more intense the cold became until his entire form was covered in a violent spray of ice. Before he could be frozen into place, Richter raised his arm and aimed the chain gauntlet at the final exposed pinnacle point of the tower. Activating the gauntlet, nothing happened. Marks continued flooding Richter with freezing ice. Richter closed his right hand into a fist and punched his raised left forearm, shattering the ice from the mechanism. The grapple fired, and Marks suddenly didn't seem so confident as the block of ice that was Richter smashed into the orb in midair. An explosion from the orb shattered the chain pulling him through the air. The translucent shadowy form disappeared. Richter was barely able to close his fingers around the blood-red sphere and tumble to the unforgiving ledge of the tower top. The orb slipped between his freezing fingers as Richter juggled foolishly for the glass sphere. He took a step and slipped, caught himself, tossed the orb into the air, pinwheeled on the very slight edge of the tower before using all of his strength to fight the frost still in his arms to reach up and grab the orb between his fingers. With the toe of his boot still on the ledge, Richter pivoted and his gravity began to pull him off the tower. Only the orb outstretched, he started to fall. As though saved by an angel, Saladia reached out and grabbed the orb within Richter's grasp, catching him on the corner of the tower so that only the orb and their hold upon it protected him. Richter found it odd that she had chosen such a poor way to save him, but all of this had happened too quickly for words. The wind blew between them for a second as Saladia bit her lip and kept hold upon the orb. Her eyes were serious as Richter's forehead crumpled. Why, Sal? Richter squinted at her from his vulnerable position. The floor rumbled, meaning that Eknar was in the midst of its planned collapse. You have to let go of the orb, Richter, she said. Why like this? Richter pleaded. Saladia swallowed hard. Do you trust me? I... Richter couldn't properly confirm and had never been able to. You don't have to answer that, said Saladia. I already know the answer, but I need you to trust me against everything inside of you telling you not to. So I tell you now, 
If you trust me, let go of the orb. Richter took hold of the orb in both his meaty grips. I can't do that. You have to. Slotia's brown eyes were filled with desperation. Richter thought of all the times they had helped one another. He thought of all the times she had been there as his second-in-command, and yet, as she was a rogue, a thief at heart, he could not bring himself to trust her completely. And yet, now, here in this crucial moment, he was being forced to do just that. His eyes darted back and forth as Solatius' hold slipped. She glared at Richter, pulling back with the tips of her fingers. It was in that moment that Richter realized he had no choice. He blinked as his eyes darted back and forth. What a predicament. What a situation to find oneself in. It was like a bad dream. He met Saladia's eyes, his mouth open a little. I hope you know what you're doing, Sal. He clutched the precious orb in his hands for a final moment, before Richter, against everything inside of him, pushed himself away from the object and one of his best friends in life to fall from the tower top. Saladia fell onto her bottom with the orb in hand as Richter was gone. She got up and ran to the ledge of the tower before leaping off herself. All around them, the floating island housing Eknar slowly began to fall into the sea. Richter tumbled through the air down the main tower of Eknar before gaining enough control to pull his parachute ripcord. The parachute popped and he was no longer falling, but angrily gliding away from the mass destruction of the floating island as it plummeted into the sea below. He saw August Porsky's ship several miles away. It looked like it was trying to slowly flee and run away as giant chunks of earth smashed into the ocean, sending tidal waves in all directions amidst the spray of sea. He was still floating toward the open ocean below, but noticed that much of the island just fell into a heap upon the tallow marshland. He didn't see Saladia or the others at all, and somewhere within the fight with Marx, his communicator stopped working. Richter was fortunate enough to land just off the coast of the marsh where he could wait safely for a ride. Porsky was a clever boy and found Richter several hours after the island finished collapsing. He had already gathered everyone else, everyone except Saladia and Salatravis. Mulligan told of how she had fled their tower before he had even finished powering his magestone. How she had ascended to the tower top without using the elevator was a mystery to everyone. A feeling of failure was fixed upon the faces of the five remaining adventurers as they returned home. With the orb stolen by Saladia, their efforts were for naught. So what do we do now? Mulligan asked. Join Roe in exile, I suppose. If Marx wants to come after us, he'll have to take the whole city, Richter said. Which was on Marx's agenda anyway. Ella rolled her eyes. Or, began Waldo with a sly grin, we can track Saladia down and get the orb back. Yeah, said Ella. She can't just rip us off and get away with it. We put our lives on the line for that orb, Mulligan agreed. No one's going after Saladia, Richter said. Silence followed his statement. Don't ask me how I know, but something tells me, something tells me that this time we just let it go. What? Waldo glared at him. That's not like you at all, Richter, Dothori said. You're giving up? Ella asked. Yeah, drawled Richter. Not the first time, and probably not the last. I don't fully trust Saladia, but the way she talked to me on the tower, I think something big is at play, and she's right in the middle of it. 
Until she decides to come back and tell us what happened, we probably won't see her for quite some time. So what's our next move then? Waldo asked. Richter gave a heavy sigh and then shook his head. I'm not sure. All I know is that I need a good long rest on solid ground. He turned and made his way to his cabin where he didn't leave until they returned to Chester's wharf. Upon returning to Roe, Richter entered his quarters and did not leave for several days. 7. Solotrevis's monstrous falcon was named Aglamen. When he and Solatia were children in Cathara, they came upon a wounded bird in the middle of the path and restored it to full health. Solotrevis spent every extra moment between his studies with the bird. Ever since, Aglamen had been in Solotrevis's debt, so occasionally they were able to coax the creature into allowing them to ride it. Because the rapport was stronger between Solotrevis and Aglamen, Solotrevis was the only one who could make this happen. But as Solatia fell from the collapsing tower with her parachute engaged, Solotrevis, upon Aglamen's back, swooped by to pick her up. They didn't have enough time to wait for Porsky or explain themselves to Richter and the rest of the group. They needed to be well on their way to Cow Desert and Charton Southeast within the next day. Aglamen was able to take them to a hamlet outside Apine Lake, a good way southeast of Chester, before it needed to set them down. Weary of their constant wait, Aglamen bid Solotrevis and Solatia farewell before taking off for the mountains where it could feast. The distance was far enough for the two to have a decent head start on their journey. Solotrevis was able to rally a few road guards for their assistance in clearing the brush once they reached the harsh terrain of the desert. They acquired two horses from the town's livery, stocked up on travel rations, and started their quest into the desert. Solatia swallowed as she surveyed the town and the landscape. Within six to twelve hours, the entire town and western coast of Shartan would be swarming with Narciss troops. They might have just enough time to reach Tonin to retrieve the battery before Marks. Unfortunately, Solatia knew that if they failed, this would become one of the millions of realities she foresaw where Alondranon would begin its long descent into chaos. They entered the desert and traveled all day and long into the night. It was almost morning when they saw the glow of Schultz's light in the distance. It was the only light anywhere other than the dual moons hanging within Alondranon's sky. The four made their way to recover the battery, and the rest is history. Always nice to see what Richter and the crew have been up to. Lots of news, so if you ever wanted to find out what happened at the end of episode 19, the audiobook Dreadnought is now available on Audible. Go check out episode 19 if you want a little taste, then go get a copy of the audiobook. But even better, my latest book, Mind Games, the sequel to Dreadnought and the Last Necromancer, is out in ebook format on December 6th. I am hoping to have the audio version of that ready just after the turn of the new year. If you'd like to know more, check out Nightbooks, nightwithak-books.com. That's nightbooks.com. This podcast is completely word of mouth, so if you enjoy this type of thing, be sure to subscribe and leave a good review if possible. Richter walked down the streets of Roe in a despondent mood. The others were out doing quests, making money, and enjoying their time. Ever since Saladia's departure, something inside of Richter had been taken. It wasn't just the orb, it was his trust altogether. Throughout their time together, Richter had essentially trusted Saladia with his life. 
that kind of betrayal from someone who actually cared about him, to become the scorpion of the fox and the scorpion crossing the river, the cut was deep. He entered one of the long corridors that passed through the interior of the city. Richter had forgotten which level he was on, but wasn't keeping track. He saw the familiar statue of the champion of Roe, and knew what level he was on. A girl of about sixteen, in a blue hood, stood, leaning on her quarterstaff as she surveyed the statue of the man who had single-handedly saved the city. The color of her robe told him she was one of the tally monks. They were a lower class of Alondron who kept no possessions and begged for food while usually living the life of an ascetic. There were temples for them to sit in Adhi in most cities, but Richter didn't know anyone from the one in Roe. Slow day, huh? Richter grunted as he paused beside her to look up at the statue. I suppose, the girl said. She had long black hair and rich green eyes. You touring the city or just interested in history? Richter nodded at the statue. The girl huffed through her nose and looked up at the statue. I learned who he was just yesterday. I went my whole life without knowing. Yeah, Jonathan Tabith saved the whole town. Best Virago champion there ever was. Probably not a show your kind would be interested in watching. No, we prefer to avoid brutality, said the girl. And to answer your question, I'm here at the king's request. He's planning some sort of long journey and I'm to escort him along the way safely. Richter eyed her warily. Uh, you're a little bit young, don't you think? The girl laughed. No, no, I'll be providing security. This time, Richter laughed. You know there's an open bounty on the king's head, right? I assure you, the king will be safe in my hands, the girl replied. It's a big world out there, sweetheart, Richter said condescendingly and turned to leave. Good luck! Name's Richter. If you need any help, we're the Adventurers Guild on the sixth floor. Good to meet you, Richter. Disguise my dad. She thumbed over her shoulder at the statue. My name is Susie Tabith. The Apocalypse Theatre Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2022.